For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. everybody. I'm actually coming on the podcast after it's already done and edited because I, in the name of pure vulnerability, I just have to tell you if there was ever a time to go watch the YouTube video, and this will feel like a plug, a shameless plug, because of course I would love for you to go there and subscribe and like and all those kind of things. But I just have to tell you the artificial intelligence, what a trip. I use a software product called Descript and it is, uh, it's an amazing editing tool. But there's a new feature that if you aren't looking directly at the camera, then you can do this eye correction. And then all of a sudden, you're always looking at the camera. So I have, I did it and I've just been so fascinated during the editing process because it's now kind of almost creepy. Like I'm just staring into the camera the entire time. And I wasn't looking at the camera. I was looking at some notes most of the time or looking around. And so I was going to undo it. But I just thought this, this is wild. The future is here. So if you get a chance, I'll have a link to the YouTube video in the show notes and as well as a link to the Descript software because it really is fascinating. You can take away all the uhs and the ums and, but this, this eye correction thing is quite a trip. I think I want to know, do you think it looks a little bit creepy or does it look normal? I think I'm so used to maybe seeing myself in the camera that it just, it just seems odd, but I just want to jump on and say that. So now uh, let's get to today's episode of the virtual couch. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 400 of The Virtual Couch. And to be honest with you, I learned it was episode 400 just a couple of minutes before jumping on. I think I assumed that I would do something really fancy for episode 400, but I'm glad you're here. And welcome to my soapbox, because I really feel like this is going to sound so dramatic, but I have a lot of big feelings today, as they say, because I want to talk about some unhealthy practices as there's a lot in the news in my world as a therapist who works with helping people overcome addictive behaviors or turning to unhealthy behaviors as coping mechanisms. And I say this all the time in my intro that I'm the licensed marriage and family therapist and creator of The Path Back, which is an online pornography recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives and that whole thing. I've been asked to comment on some some news lately, and I haven't really had the chance to do that on interviews. So, but I've been putting a lot of pieces together. So I thought, where better than to share it on my own podcast? So, what I want to do first is read a news article from MSN.com, and it's about Jody Hildebrandt, who is also a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I've had a handful of clients. I won't throw out my old narcissistic math and say so many clients, but I've had a few that have that I've interacted with, worked with, or taken her courses. I just want to speak to what I believe is a very shame-based way to work with 
unhealthy coping mechanisms, marriage, parenting, all of those things. And it's driving me crazy because there was even a, a little bit of a, maybe an assumption. There was an observation and a judgment that because of a lot of the clientele that I work with, that I was in the same bucket of shame-based therapist. And I guess that's what maybe brought frustration to my awareness. I don't know if that's the mindful way to say that. So I want to read this article. It's pretty short, but I just want this to be out there so that, so that then when I comment on it, that I'm referring to this, what I've read in the article, because I think we will say that it is alleged. But according to MSN.com, oh, the article is by Rebecca Cohen and it's titled, A former client of Jody Hildebrandt says his family and life were destroyed after she spilled details of his sessions to the Mormon church. Jody Hildebrandt, the former business partner of family YouTube vlogger Ruby Frankie, one spilled details about how one of her clients, one spilled details about one of her clients to the Mormon church, according to state documents. Now the man says it destroyed his life, NBC News reports. An attorney for Hildebrandt did not immediately respond to Insider's request for comment. As Insider previously reported, Hildebrandt discussed sensitive private information about a couple who were her clients with Mormon church leaders and Brigham Young University between April 2008 and March 2010 according to Utah Department of Commerce's Division of Occupational and Professional Licensing Documents. The document said the conversations happened, quote, on multiple occasions, and that Hildebrandt disclosed sensitive confidential information about a male client, including a medical diagnosis with the Honor Code Office at BYU, without having received signed authorizations or any other type of permission. Her therapy license was put on probation in 2012 for 18 months, as a disciplinary action. And in August, Hildebrandt, alongside Frankie, was arrested and charged with child abuse and probable cause affidavit obtained by Insider. Authorities said Frankie's kids were discovered injured and malnourished at Hildebrandt's home. The man, whose identity was previously anonymous, spoke to NBC News about this uh, and how it's affected his life. Adam Paul Steed, now 40, told NBC News that he saw Hildebrandt in 2008 for nine months with then-wife for marriage counseling. He told NBC News that Hildebrand had tried to treat him for sex and porn addictions. So we'll talk about that here in a second. Sex and porn addictions, but he refused the treatment. Steed alleged in his interview with NBC News that Hildebrand shared false information about him with the Mormon church, BYU, and his ex-wife. He said he then lost his church privileges, was suspended from BYU, and got a divorce from his wife. My family got destroyed, he told NBC News, and my life got destroyed. He said that his marriage began to fall apart. After nine months of couples counseling with Hildebrandt, he told NBC News that Hildebrandt said the couple needed to, quote, triple down on the number of therapy sessions that they were having. It's a red flag, um, in my opinion, as a therapist there. Seed alleged that Hildebrandt was blaming everything on me being a sexual addict at that point. Seed had experienced childhood sexual abuse as a teen, and he told NBC that Hildebrandt used his prior experience against him in counseling. She was saying that every time I said I was a victim of sexual abuse, that that was my addiction speaking. So if I had PTSD and trauma and I mentioned it, they would confront me that it was my addiction of sexual abuse, Steve told NBC News. This is where it just starts to boil my blood because he is, if he is expressing how he is feeling, then here's someone else in this position of authority that is letting him know that your feelings are wrong. And if we go right back to our good old childhood days of expressing our emotions and being told it's not a big deal, don't worry about it, you're taking it the wrong way, do you know how that makes me feel? Then basically we're experiencing this childhood trauma once again. 
But Steed told NBC News that throughout counseling with Hildebrandt, he believed his ex-wife felt like she had to protect herself and their kids from him. So I do wonder aloud where that was reinforced. So today, I want to spend some time talking about primarily how damaging this type of therapy, and I use that term incredibly loosely, can be, and how as a therapist who, quite frankly, uses what I can only surmise as the exact opposite approach, and I get very good results, I want to add that this, this honestly frustrates me to no end, and it makes the entire profession look bad, and it fosters distrust in the profession, and it's so just incredibly about the therapist, which is the exact opposite of why people go to therapy. So I really want to start talking about this over the next few episodes, but today I want to talk about how we have to change the dialogue of helping people who are looking for help, especially people that are looking for help turning away from coping mechanisms like pornography because it is a coping mechanism when someone doesn't feel a connection to various areas or aspects in their life. And this is coming from somebody that someone is played by me who has literally helped over a thousand or more. I think 1500 is what I would say when I was promoting my book, but over 1500 individuals from becoming, or I've helped over 1500 individuals become better versions of themselves by learning how to accept that they are human beings and they have thoughts and they have emotions and they have desires and they have wants and how, since they are the only versions of themselves that have ever walked the face of the earth with their nature, nurture, birth order, DNA, abandonment, rejection, hopes, dreams, fears, all of it, that they are the only ones who truly know what it feels like to be them, period, end of story. So let's start from there and how as the only versions of themselves, that then how on earth can somebody else tell them how they're feeling, even if they are a, a an expert? Because how emotionally immature and narcissistic is that of me to think that just because I've sat and talked with a lot of people, and quite frankly, I have opinions. Of course I do. That's part of uh, what I actually love about my job is knowing something so well that I have very strong opinions. But man, if somebody can't admit that they don't know what they don't know, so that then as they begin to learn something and really care about something and start to feel confident about something, it's what I call the healthy ego based of, on real life experience, then that better come with the so I got here by understanding that there were plenty of things I did not even know that I did not know. So how on earth am I at this point now where, well, now I know my uh, life is complete. Now I know, now I can take the opportunity to now judge everyone from my one-up position. And so I think that's where a good place to start is not tell somebody what they need to be doing because how, quite frankly, again, can somebody just assume that they, I mean, literally know what's best for somebody else. And it may sound counterintuitive from a therapist, but actually my job is to help the person feel safe enough to share things with someone free of judgment that helps them feel safe. And that is where we need to operate from. Before I get back to Adam Steed, I remember when I was learning a little bit more about the trauma therapy EMDR, and there's this concept where you are moving your hand back and forth, or I have these Thera tappers that go back and forth in people's palms. And I remember when I was learning a little bit more about the science of that, and I, I got this from an Andrew Huberman video. I really enjoy his podcast. In essence, it was the concept that why talk therapy even works over time is that when somebody is expressing things that are scary. And when we keep them in our heads, they typically work out to the worst case example, because that's just a part of the human condition. It's a survival mechanism. It, it did a phenomenal job keeping us safe when we were on the plains of on the Savannah. But now 
we can go a little bit overboard with all of that defaulting to the negative. So we have to be pretty intentional about not letting ourselves ruminate or get caught up in, in one of those negative shame spirals. And so the way this EMDR concept worked, uh, as I understood it, is that if you take that, that the way that talk therapy works is somebody expressing the scary things and having somebody sitting across and saying, tell me more, what was that like for you? Then what did you do? Because it starts to calm down our amygdala and so that we can, we can start to feel safe. And as we do that, we sometimes learn that these scary or traumatic things aren't as scary or aren't as traumatic. And now I can start to access the tools that I need for healing and for growth and for acceptance. Those are all the opposite of somebody saying, you don't even understand that this is your addiction talking. I would love to help somebody get to the point where they maybe are looking at themselves with curiosity and grace and forgiveness and say, and you know what? I wonder if that's, that's my addiction, my, my addictive tendencies, my addictive nature. Is that my emotional immaturity? Is that my coping mechanism? Because then we can really start to dig in and the client has bought in. And I hope you can see where we're going today. Because if I am going to someone and I'm just telling them, tell me what I need to do and how I'm supposed to feel. First of all, it's not going to really feel much of a connection. That's where when somebody does say, just tell me what to do every now and again, if I have a good rapport with the person, I'll say, okay, I'll play this game. Well, I think that you should start with this. And then I get the, well, yeah, but you don't understand. That's where I say, oh, precisely, I don't. So tell me more about that. And so <laughs> third, third attempt at back to the concepts around EMDR. So you're expressing yourself and the person is t- saying, tell me more, not I would have done this or why didn't you do this? Or you know what you don't understand is, because that's going to put us right back into that place of they're right, we're wrong. Emotional immaturity at its finest. How about there are more than... That we, we can all have our own opinions and thoughts and feelings. So now we're in this dyadic collaborative process, processing emotion in concert with another person who is a, hopefully a trained professional that is not there to make things about them. We'll go attempt four here in EMDR because this part's just fun to know. As we are up and moving forward in childhood, our little eyes are scanning back and forth, back and forth, left, right, left, right. Are we safe? I'm looking ahead to see if I'm going to trip over toys or the dog or whatever that looks like. And so the one of the theories there is that so over time, because our brain is eh, it can be kind of silly and maybe not as smart sometimes, but in this regard, it says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip a couple of steps here. And if I'm looking left, right, left, right, I think I must be safe. So we're going to, we're going to put you know, secrete a, a, a hormone, a drug, a chemical in our brains that will keep our amygdala down, our fight or flight response suppressed a bit. So then some amazing people over the years, I think Francine Shapiro is one of the first people that then had the hypothesis that, okay, if we're getting those eyes moving back and forth, then maybe that will calm the amygdala down and people can process trauma and it won't be as scary. So we can speed up that whole long-term therapy concept for certain things, uh, especially But so that's that concept of safety, though. We need to have emotional safety. So back to Adam Steed's experience. Uh, I said she, Jody, was saying that every time I said I was a victim of sexual abuse, that was my addiction speaking. I I don't hear a lot of, tell me more about that. What's that like? Then what happened? You know, help me understand. So he said, if I had PTSD and trauma and I mentioned it, then they would confront me. That was my addiction of sexual abuse. Uh, Holy gaslighting, Batman. I, I mean, I can't even imagine what that must have felt like for him to come to a licensed professional for help and feel like absolute garbage, which I might add is the reason why he's coming for help because of the aforementioned feeling of garbage. So today I want to continue to talk about what I have been told recently as a bit of a a controversial concept in and of itself because 
there are some haters of the author of uh, one of the articles that I'm going to refer to, as well as one of the researchers involved. So with that said, I was even told by a trusted friend and advisor, am I prepared to potentially take the arrows from people who have personal access to grind for the people or the people who disagree with what I'm going to share about, you know, I guess my state of the union on pornography, I'm going to say addiction and I'm for anybody listening and not watching. Actually, I didn't even do it. Pornography addiction. And for anybody listening and not watching on my YouTube channel, shameless plug, please go subscribe. And I come in peace, but I also come as a professional who feels absolute passion for getting the correct information out there based on my experience of what actually helps people overcome turning to pornography or gambling or food or their phones or, or, or as coping mechanisms. I was even told by a trusted friend and advisor that he asked, am I prepared to potentially take the arrows from people who have personal access to grind uh, for these people, these, this author, Dr. David Lay, or a researcher that people may disagree with, um, because they also might disagree with what I am going to share about the state of the union of pornography addiction. And for anybody listening and not watching on my YouTube channel, shameless plug, please go and subscribe. I did do air quotes with the word addiction, but please know that I come in peace But I also come as a professional who feels absolute passion for getting the correct information out there based on my experience of what actually helps people overcome turning to pornography or gambling or food or their phones or, or, or as coping mechanisms. And that, my friends, is where I absolutely love to say at this point, but I will admit that I only have a sample size of maybe some 17 years and again, maybe 1,500 or more individuals. And that's not even including my Pathback Addiction Recovery Group that has amazing weekly meetings where we aren't talking so much about, hey, make sure you feel bad about pornography. No, it's about learning how to live, how to be a better partner, how to be a better parent, how to learn to sit with invalidation. Last night, our entire conversation was around discomfort. It was one of the funniest, I feel like most healthy and productive conversations I think I've had on the path back. And I'm not even shameless plug. I will plug it. Go join the path back, take my online recovery course, Jump in the group, send me a a message, I'll I'll give you a coupon code, whatever it takes, because you need the right tools out there. And I provide them on the podcast. I want you to know this isn't like I'm trying to hide them. You can buy my book and there's a, we've got a TikTok series out now. So there's ways to get the data. It's just whatever, however you want to consume it. I go back to the, in helping that many people. So 17 years, maybe 1500 or more individuals, but so far, shame has played a role in, oh, I am dragging this out with a monotone for dramatic effect, which I now think has been accomplished, zero people's recovery, as in shame, bad, shame, really, really bad. So when a therapist or a coach or a parent or a spouse or a religious leader or an employer or anybody uses shame on someone else, I want to be very clear and dramatic, quite frankly, that's a them issue. That is coming from a place of deep emotional insecurity, emotional immaturity, from a place where that person doing the shaming, that's, again, from their emotional immaturity because of the way that they were modeled behavior or how they were treated growing up, that they think that you must establish dominance, that you must command respect, that you must put that person in their place in order to get them to do what you think is best for them. Does that sound like issues from childhood with a parent who motivated by control and fear? If it quote, worked on them, and by work at this point, I mean simply that it happened to them, then if they can convince the world, and this is why therapists do get a bad rap if we go to become therapists to work on our own stuff, which I at first thought, no, I don't. 
Absolutely, I do. And in my world, it's been an amazing journey to realize my own emotional immaturity, to learn nice evidence-based tools like acceptance and commitment therapy and nurtured heart parenting technique, emotionally focused therapy for couples, valor stages of faith, all the things to help work through those areas where I felt like I was not enough or I was less than so that I can put myself in a position to help others and especially help myself and hopefully my spouse and my family. I go back to that. If somebody is becoming a therapist or a coach or a religious leader or you name it so that they can repeat the things that were done to them and double down or triple down on it so that then they can, if they can get other people to do it as well, then that must mean that their parent or parents or whoever it was did the right thing. And that means that they are okay and that they don't have to look inward, self-reflect, take ownership or accountability of their own actions and break a freaking family pattern. That's it's, it's uncomfortable doing your own real work is difficult but then when you break through and get to the other side, it is one of the greatest experiences that you could have. And you realize how much it, you baggage you carry around, sure, from your childhood or from your insecurities or your nice guy syndrome or your anxiety or any of those things. And that's where as a therapist, it breaks my heart to think that not only are some people not, a lot of people aren't, aren't aware of how good therapy can be, but then they may go to a therapist who is absolute garbage and I think can make it worse back to break that family pattern instead of, holy crap, that wasn't cool what I had to go through. And then I'll add a healthy, bless my parents' hearts because they didn't know or don't know. Or, But now to have an opportunity to be this transformational figure for myself and my own family and do it differently so that I can change uh, generations of time. I honestly, I get pretty tired of hearing stories of people saying that you, you need to get respect from your kids. They need to know from a young age that you are the boss, that you are in charge, and this is the way that you are going to get rid of your anxiety and exert control. Now, that, that's not what they say. They say, that's what this is the way it's going to be done. I need to teach you so that then I will feel validated from my own childhood, and I need to not worry about that there may be other opportunities there. And then I need to say that everyone else is wrong and I am right. And then I need to have confirmation bias and look for other people that also agree that this is the way that you do it to sharpen the stick or I don't even know the all the cliches or those things. Instead, I really am a big fan of the evidence-based principles around things like the nurtured heart approach where your your job, kids go to their uh, parents to to get their whole sense of self. So if their sense of self is I'm always doing it wrong, I'm a screw up and then when I express myself then that's wrong and not now and do you know how that makes me feel? That is the opposite of a secure attachment. And I, I hear these things all the time. So then they let the, yeah, the kids need to know that they're not going to get away with anything. And their kids, I've heard of this very recently, the person saying, my kids appreciate it now that they're older. Now, do they? Or when you tell them that they appreciate the way that they were raised, they pretty much go flat and say, uh-huh, yeah, you were the best. And then as you're following up with, and uh, make sure that you call me more rather than providing your kids with the secure attachment, meaning that they were allowed to be human. They were allowed to make mistakes. You were very curious about their life, their situation. And you realized that it was your opportunity as a parent to differentiate. That is, the, your kid interacted with the world and did things that the what it brought up for you was something that you absolutely um, could say, man, check this out. That brought up anger. That brought up me wanting to get rid of my discomfort with control. And that is not a good thing at all. So guess what? I can do better. I can be better. And then meanwhile, I would like to have a relationship with my kids. 
And as now my youngest kid is 19, we got the 19, 21, 23, 25 going. Couldn't be more grateful for the relationship with my kids. And I, I don't even know what that means to, to demand their respect. And they need to know what all those things. They need to know that they matter and that they are loved and that they are going to make mistakes and they are going to have a, a place where they can go and have a safe person who's going to tell them, tell me, tell me what that was like. What can I do to support you? If I'm even saying, well, I think you should do this. Oh, hey, that's uh, interesting. That's a me issue. That's about me. That secure attachment. That is like a game changer. Now I realize we're pretty far away from the pornography pool, but we'll get back there. Instead of talking about everything, it's about right and wrong, because what does that do? That gives a parent the opportunity to now tell their kid what they were doing wrong constantly. Sit up straight, tuck your shirt in, don't slouch. What do you say? Tell them, thank you. Tell them, uh, you understand why I'm doing this, right? Gosh, I could go on. Back to today's topic. We'll be using Dr. David Lay's article from psychologytoday.com. Your belief in porn addiction makes things worse with the subheading of the label of porn addict causes depression, but porn watching doesn't. And let me tell you straight up, his article is not pro-porn. It is anti-shame. It is anti-using the wrong tools. He talks about this one concept in particular that I think is so important. It's the word iatrogenic. And what that is, is it describes illnesses or damages that are acquired as a result of treatment. So if you go into a hospital for an appendectomy and you get a staph infection, then that's iatrogenic harm. The porn addiction treatment model is iatrogenic, says this person who has helped well over 1,500 people overcome turning to pornography as an unhealthy coping mechanism. Now, I think Elephant in the Room for me is my best-selling book in the sexual health and recovery category is called He's a Porn Addict, Now What? An expert and a former addict answer your questions where I play the role of the expert. We, we talked about it with our publisher quite a bit about the title, and it was to bring some awareness because that's what most people do refer to turning to pornography as an unhealthy coping mechanism. That would have made for a much worse title. But to Joshua Shea, the co-author and I, we get right into it early about is it an addiction? And he and I both have been interviewed several times in print and podcasts and video where we say, by definition, there isn't a pornography addiction. Maybe you can start looking at impulse control disorder, or compulsive sexual behavior, but pornography addiction is not the case. Now, if somebody feels like that will help them in their quest to, to be better, then and I do it with humor. Then I say, okay, if, if you feel like being an addict will help you, then I dub the addict. If you feel like addiction makes me feel worse, then okay, let's just get to the tools at hand, which are strength-based, become the person you always wanted to be, learn to sit with some discomfort. Every tool that is the opposite of, do you know how bad this is? Or you don't even understand what you're doing. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Let's get into this article. Well, actually, pre, so let's talk about a couple more things here before we get to the article, because I do want to talk about the, this, the quote that I love. Because if, again, if we're talking about the concepts of pornography addiction, there officially, there's no diagnosis. Now, I believe strongly people turn to things like pornography when they feel down about the, what I call these voids in their life, when they don't feel a connection in their relationship, maybe their marriage, or they don't feel a connection to their kids as a parent. They don't feel like they are, their health is good. They're struggling with their faith community, or they don't like their job. And I feel like when people don't have those things in alignment or living by a, a sense of purpose or values, 
then they turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms. So that is why I have my four pillars of a connected conversation via emotionally focused therapy by Sue Johnson that addresses the couple's concept. Howard Glasser's transforming the difficult child and nurtured heart approach is an amazing parenting model. James Fowler's stages of faith, helping people with their faith journeys and faith crisis that, that works on that void. And then I feel like acceptance and commitment therapy is the, it is the gold standard of, and, and I have been a cognitive behavioral therapist for a long time before switching over to acceptance and commitment therapy, which again starts with the, you're the only version of you. It doesn't start out with the, my stinking thinking, my automatic negative thoughts. I, I believe as somebody that practiced that for years, that that is one of the problems that goes along with this shame-based approach that that says, Hey, you start off broken. Now just change your mindset. You just got to think about it differently. You just got to try harder. You just got to be better. And then when that doesn't work, then you just get to double and triple down on the what's wrong with me. And then you'll go to the next book or course or therapist. But when you have the right tools, there's a whole world of recognizing you're okay with acceptance. Now I can start to fill in these voids. I give the whatever the unhealthy coping mechanism is a lot less emotional energy or calories. If And if there is a setback, not even a big fan of the word relapse, then that happened. So we'll note that. Let's try not, try not to go on a bender. And then break down the game film, anything I'm pretending not to know, and now turn to a value-based activity. And when you put that together, and when that starts to be part of your implicit memory or what it feels like to be you, now we're talking change. And we're talking not just a, I will always be an addict. No, we're talking about, I'm a I'm a pretty amazing human being that is figuring things out. And then I promise then that, that why I love the concept of differentiation is everything becomes a, a thing that you interact with, your muse, your kid, when you interact with them and they say something or make you feel a certain way. Oh, fascinating. I now have an opportunity to self-confront and grow. So I, I sometimes think of, of even pornography as the great differentiator. What is that bringing up for me? What is that satisfying for me? What am I afraid to talk about in my relationship that then causes me to turn to this thing? It's a thing. I'm a human. I'm a wonderful human being that sometimes turns to unhealthy coping mechanisms. That is so far away from the, you don't understand how bad you are. Shame, shame. That's your addiction talking. Okay, I'm going to stay on my soapbox. (laughs) There is a quote, my friend Sam Tielemans, who is host of the podcast, Couples Healing from Pornography Addiction, shared with me when I was on his podcast, or he was on mine, where he said, the strongest force in the human personality is to act in alignment with how you see yourself. So however you identify yourself, you're going to find a way back to your home base. So full disclosure, I told Sam that I want to say the quote enough that I can actively confabulate this quote into my own life. I want this one to be mine because I like it so much that someday down the road, then I will have tricked my own brain into saying with confidence, like I always say, the strongest force in the human personality is to act in alignment with how you see yourself. So however you identify yourself, you're going to find a way back to your home base. Uh, I kid, but I also just did an entire episode on confabulation this week on waking up to narcissism as well as uh, a answered some questions about confabulation on the waking up to narcissism premium question and answer podcast. And yes, I highly recommend you check both of those out because confabulation alone is such a powerful concept that we all do to an extent fill in our gaps of memory. And quite frankly, if I'm talking about emotional immaturity and or narcissism, even with a uh, professional person, then I believe there's some serious confabulation going on. There, There are some things that we need to talk about. Wonderful listening friends of mine 
with what, what that confabulation can do when someone is only in something to get validation, then they're going to confabulate the heck out of their own memory to the, make sure that their internal narrative backs up what they are doing. It, it's where the, it's the origin story of gaslighting. I didn't do it. As a matter of fact, uh, you did it and you're dumb. And I can't believe you, you don't even know you did it. And matter of fact, I think you owe me an apology. So uh, it's just this again, powerful concept um, of, of how we all just fill these gaps of memory. But the key difference between somebody self-aware or on their own personal journey of discovery or self-awareness is that they are willing to accept that what they are thinking that they said might in fact not be exactly what they said. And back to my quote, though, about strongest force in the human personality. See what I did there? But I share this with regard to addiction in particular or unhealthy coping mechanisms because if somebody identifies themselves as an addict or anxious or depressed or always late or angry or hates exercise, there's just so many things. If we continually tell ourselves that this is who we are, then that becomes the home base that we operate from. So even if you find yourself in a moment being fully present, maybe not feeling a lot of anxiety or the fog of depression temporarily lifted, are you strung together hours, days, or weeks of sobriety from you name it, porn? alcohol, vaping, games on your phone, mindlessly scrolling social media. Well, it's only temporary because after all, I've already identified my home base as addict, anxious, depressed, broken, stupid, stuck. And I promise you, I'm not going to tell you now to simply change your mindset. Wake up tomorrow and say, I'm not doing that anymore. I am truly sorry. But again, that is one of the most frustrating things from my therapist chair that I deal with on, yes, a daily basis with clients. What's wrong with me? Why can't I be perfect now? Why did I return back to behaviors that I know aren't good for me that I've been doing for my entire life? Why can't I immediately stand up for myself, leave my abusive relationship, kick whatever the habit is, be more fill in the blank, more spiritual, more organized, more caring, more confident? Okay, I will use the phrase mindset, but in the good way, here's a mindset challenge. Shift that mindset to, hey, check this out. This is what I'm thinking. This is how I'm acting. That's interesting. My home base is as a human being going through life for the very first time as me. And in this very moment, this is how I feel. This is what I'm thinking. Isn't that interesting? No more of the what's wrong with me. I hate when I do that. I'm stupid. I'm broken. It's going to drive me crazy. I guess that's a me issue, but I'll sit in my healthy ego with that one. If you think that you're going to struggle with something for the rest of your life, then your mind says, okay, well, that's, uh, I guess we're going to struggle with this our entire life because that's who I am. And then all my behaviors are going to find a way back to where even if I'm doing something good, yeah, I had a good moment, but that's not what really, that's not who I am. I'm the one that struggles, remember? So what this means is if you see yourself as an addict or label yourself that way, you're setting yourself up. You might be doing great. You might be avoiding things that you're trying to avoid for a long time. And the best part about that is when you have the right tools and you're filling in these voids or gaps with not just healthy coping mechanisms, but becoming, becoming and being. You went from, I did not know what I did not know. To now I know, I know the tools, but it's really hard to implement them. And I don't do them very often. And that's a tough place to be. And that's where you'll be for a while. But then eventually you start doing the things, turning to the healthy things more than you don't. And at some point you just become, it's part of who you are. It's your implicit memory. It's what it feels like to be you. But if you are still thinking of yourself as an addict, it's like you're on a a tightrope just waiting to fall. So what if you flip the script? What if you saw yourself as someone who was always growing or learning? or a good person, or a child of God. If you slip up now, and then it does not define you, it's a small hiccup on this much bigger journey. Because everybody, I don't even want to say messes up sometimes, because that's what I got to get back into the old mindset. Everybody is human. Everybody does things. They're being and doing. Life is life and all over us. But it's about where you're headed, the direction, how you see yourself that really matters the most. 
let me do this. I want to take a break right now because that is something I just think I've wanted to get off my chest for a long time. We'll tackle the article in a part two and promise you there really will be a part two. And I really appreciate everything, the support from listeners and viewers. And if you, if this one resonated with you, please share it. And if you have examples, I would love to call upon my virtual couch audience, listeners, viewers, that if you've had bad experiences with your therapist or with your life coach or, or your religious leader, and I would love to put those together. I would love to do a series on those. I would love to, to address those because I think we're kind of done with the whole shame stuff. It's enough. I appreciate you. You are an amazing human being going through life for the very first time in your life as you. So you're thinking and doing the things you are because you are that's a great place to start. And then as you now start to lean into your own sense of self, sense of purpose, find out what really matters to you, it's going to be a little uncomfortable because you're probably maybe a little bit enmeshed or codependent in your relationship now because we kind of all are till we're not. So they might tell you, well, I didn't know you like, I was going to say sardines, but I don't know if anybody really does, but you can think and like and feel the way you do. That's perfectly okay. If somebody else is saying, I don't like that idea. You can't think that way. How do you think that makes me feel? That's a them issue especially if they like sardines. So I will, I hope to hear from you soon and I will see you next time on The Virtual Catch. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waste and rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most It's wonderful